Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. New York time. I gather for our guest, it's 3 in the afternoon. Uh, We'll speak to him in a minute. And you can catch our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. And be sure to download our app. So our guest today is physicist David Deutsch, who pioneered quantum computing by formulating a quantum Turing machine. And I first became aware of him when I discovered his book, The Fabric of Reality. So, David, welcome to Visionaries. Hi. Nice to be here. Great. Um, Why don't we start with... um, the fabric of reality. That's a few years back, but tell us what you tried to do with that book and what your thoughts are about it today. Um, the reason I wrote the book is that that I had thought that um, several things, several strands of knowledge that were in themselves considered to be deep, uh, were some of the deepest things we know, like the, the theory of knowledge itself and the theory of evolution, the theory of computation and quantum physics, those four things were actually intimately related to each other so that you couldn't properly understand any of them without the others. And uh, th- this was inspired actually um, several years before by a series of lectures uh, given by my old boss, Bryce DeWitt, um, in Texas, and he, he gave some lectures called Quantum Theory of Everything, which was purely physics. But if you looked at the uh, at the philosophy behind this idea that that uh, quantum theory uh, that there is a quantum theory that applies to everything, then it had much wider ramifications. So it's interesting that. When we read history of science and philosophy, the impact that Isaac Newton had with all of these Enlightenment thinkers rushing to bring a kind of Newtonian rationality to every aspect of science, thought, human society. And there's been maybe we've been more timid about uh, quantum theory. So how um, how do you what was your thinking about a quantum theory of everything and how has that unfolded for you? Well, I, I think we've been much worse than timid. Um, uh, in, in the 20th century, something really terrible happened to philosophy. Um, it, it, it stopped being about anything and started being about how to uh, prevent people from making arguments, prevent people from talking about what's true and false, and so on. And this infected physics as well, because this was this is sort of logical positivism or that kind of idea. Um, and it came along at, at, at the same time as quantum theory. 
And uh, quantum theory has never fully recovered from that, although um, the, the recovery, uh, the, the, it, it, physics being physics, it never fully succumbed to this. Um, and, but, but on the other hand, it hasn't fully recovered to this day. So I think that the... Um, so how would you describe the negative impact of logical positivism on thinking about quantum theory? Um, it, it it made it legitimate to adopt first of all the the uh, ideas of Niels Bohr, one one of the pioneers of quantum theory. Um, his idea about what quantum theory meant, which came to be known as the Copenhagen interpretation, and that that um, among other things said that certain types of explanation were not legitimate. They they were not uh, supported by reality. And in particular, when one does an experiment, one sets up the experiment and then one observes the outcome, it was illegitimate, according to the Copenhagen interpretation, to ask how the outcome was brought about, given how the, the experiment started out. And, and that meant that, that um, the basic question of science, namely, what is there in the world? Um, what does it do? How does it work? And how does it account for what we observe? That whole class of questions was illegitimate. Mm -hmm. And, and um, that uh, uh, put a damper at least uh, on, on progress in uh, understanding quantum physics, and in some respects, uh, held it up altogether. Do you think so that, that uh, was in part yes. uh, to protect scientists, to protect themselves from some of the weirdness of quantum theory? Yes, although uh, I, I don't think th that that excuse covers it, because, mm. again, round about the same period, Relativity uh, came along, and and uh, like quantum theory, it, it was the, the the best description of reality that had yet been made. It it was completely superior to all previous theories. It was extremely counterintuitive, in my view, more counterintuitive than quantum mechanics, mm. and and yet the physics community adopted it without much murmur. I mean, there were a few diehards, as there always are. Uh, but, but most working physicists um, took relativity on board, not only as a, as a means of uh, making predictions, but into their worldview. In, in quantum mechanics, that just didn't happen. Hmm. Are you familiar with Adam Becker's book, What is Real?, no, I'm not. I'm it's it's a good presentation of exactly what you were just saying, and describes uh, Hugh Everett, um, John Bell, uh, and um, David Bohm, and the hard time they had. <laughs> How you know, sort of the inside politics of science and what happened to them and their ideas. So I gather you're you're always described as a major proponent of the many worlds approach to quantum theory. So could you describe how that sort of came out of this um, maybe quantum weirdness and and where it stands, what, what the idea is and maybe where it stands in terms of the politics of science? 
Um, as I said, the Copenhagen interpretation and, and the other interpretations that, that it gave rise to later on uh, all have the property that, that um, they, they refuse to explain what happens in between observations. Mm. Um, and that is uh, for a very good reason, uh, because there, there isn't, uh, one can prove that there isn't an explanation that is entirely in terms of uh, a single universe, it, it, which which means in this case, never mind the universe. Just for the for the uh, just in terms of the experiment itself, there is no explanation in terms of the objects that are that are participating in the experiment that we see, uh, things like the the mirrors and the photons and uh, the detectors of photons and. The, one can prove that no story about what they are doing can explain what happens from the beginning of the experiment to the end, including the part that one doesn't observe. So let me just interrupt and describe for our audience. I'm going to put ideas in your mouth, but uh, I think David's talking about experiments where photons are sent out and hit mirrors and beam splitters so that they split into two and then interact with each other and then just do really weird things. That's right. Uh, or, or rather, they are weird if one tries to explain them, if one tries to uh, account for what happens just in terms of the things that we see. And the, the so-called many universes interpretation proposed by Hugh Everett, um, explains the results by, by saying that, that at the intermediate um, stages of the experiment, uh, well, first of all, by, by saying that, that whenever we do such an experiment, that there are multiple copies of us, instances of us, also doing the experiment in universes that we can't uh, di directly detect except via these interference experiments. And during the interference experiment, during the interference phenomenon, uh, um, objects from the other universes interact with ours and cause the outcome to be as we as we observe. Mm -hmm. So that's that's uh, that that uh, explains what happens um, in between uh, when we set up the photon, when we put it into the apparatus, and when we observe it coming out. Now, this many universes, it's not just that there's a universe in which uh, Germany won World War II, but they really, at every um, particle interaction of which there are countless, I don't know if we should use the word infinity, but that at every one of countless particle interactions, there are countless universes spin off? Yes. Um, nowadays... Um we find it easier to talk uh, in terms of a multiverse rather than universe says. Hmm. The reality consists of a multiverse, which in parts, uh, parts of it are sort of autonomous and don't notice the other parts, at least on a gross scale. And those parts that, are, that, that behave roughly independently of the rest of the multiverse, we call universes. Now, when, when things happen, like a beam splitter splits the photon in two, um, all that's happening is that the universe, that, that's happening in a whole sheaf 
of universes. And it's not that the whole universe uh, bifurcates into two. It's, it's that uh, of that sheaf of universes in which the photon hit the beam splitter, in half of them it does one thing and in half it does the other. So the universes differentiate from each other rather than new universes being created. Mm-hmm. And, and what's more, the, the universes are, continue to be identical except for that photon. And they only, the, the differences between them only start spreading out when that photon further interacts with something differently according to which direction it went in. Right. So there's got to be a lot of universes out there by now. Well, it's it's a continuum. It, it, it's no big deal. It's just like asking in in uh, in uh, Newtonian physics, how many points are there um, between A and B? Well, there's uh-huh. an infinite number, but uh, we don't think that's very mind-boggling um, because although there's an infinite number, there's a finite measure of them. You know that there's only a few meters. Uh, I, I only need to move a few meters to cross the room even though I'm passing through an infinite number of points to do so. Right. And the infinity of, of the multiverse is, is no different from that in principle. Uh-huh. So let's, uh, picking up on this multiverse, one of the questions might become, okay, does it matter? Uh, and I'm going to uh, describe a, uh, an idea I put in, I express as yours, and tell me if I have it wrong. But I like to say... David Deutsch explains the prodigious power of a quantum computer by saying that it harnesses its siblings in parallel universes. So let me know if I got that right, and if so, um, uh, what is a quantum computer and how does it do that? (laughs) That is exactly right. Um, And um, this idea that... that, um, uh, well, the interference effects, uh, we spoke just now about interference effects between a photon, a single photon, and its counterparts in other universes. In an interference phenomenon, they interact with each other and cause each other to do things that they wouldn't do if the others weren't there. Mm. Uh, now, if you, do, if you imagine a slightly more complicated uh, experiment, and, and the first person, I think, to... Uh, imagine this sort of thing was was Richard Feynman. If you imagine that that they don't just the the photon just doesn't go in two different ways through a beam splitter, but on these two different ways it does something, like it does a computation. You know, a, a photon couldn't do much of a computation, but something with more internal degrees of freedom could do a computation while it was on its way, and it could do a different computation depending on which way it went. And so you'd get two, two computations happening in parallel. And when they uh, join together again in the interference phenomenon, the result could be something that depends on both of the computations. And, and that was the idea that in, I introduced then. Mm. Um, that, that was the first quantum algorithm. It was an algorithm that, that did in one step what classically one could only do in two steps. <laughs> that, not a very impressive um, speed up. But, but um, as far as theory goes and as far as philosophy goes, that's already the whole power of quantum computation right there. Mm. Could you describe where that idea you just described 
stands in relation to Shor's algorithm, which came first, and how does it sort of unfold into... Uh, the, the, the simple thing I described um, came first. Uh, I, I, I proposed it in, in 1984 or 5. Cool. Uh, Shor's algorithm came uh, something like a decade later, but it is much more impressive because the Shor's algorithm is the thing that you would perform by using a fully-fledged quantum computer, which would have thousands of qubits, in a, rather like having thousands of photons, all of them connected to each other. Um, and uh, it, or it, it's, um, it's sometimes mis mistakenly said that uh, it would factorize numbers by trying all the possibilities. That actually doesn't work. A, a, a quantum computer could do that, but it couldn't then deliver the result into each universe. Uh, the, the interference phenomenon just won't do that for you. But he thought of a <coughs> clever mathematical trick whereby you could get the computer not to actually factorize, try, try different factors in different universes, but do a certain computation in different universes, uh, slightly different in each universe, and then the interference phenomenon would, um, uh, would deliver the factors of the number um, into every universe. So it, it, it's, it's a deterministic thing, and it depends on subcomputations having been performed in vast numbers of universes, um, far more universes than there are atoms in one universe. Hmm. Uh, and and so <laughs> scientists today are trying to keep track of all these photons or electrons or whatever particle they're using and have them not bump into anything to get this to work, right? That's right. <laughs> um, so before we go on to your uh, more recent book, let's just stick for a moment with Fabric of Reality. And I'm interested in... Okay, I'm going to be just a bit autobiographical. When I did my master's thesis on consciousness and culture in uh, the late 60s, there were a few references I used. One of them was Marshall McLuhan's Understanding Media, which all my colleagues today have heard of but haven't read it. But then other works like uh, Mila Kepik's The Philosophical Impact of Contemporary Physics, which uh, even though it was written in the 60s, I think is still useful. And I think about sort of a history and genealogy of ideas. So let's go back, and do you have any take on the impact of Fabric of Reality? Did anybody pick up on it, carry any of the ideas forward? How do you feel about today, about your attempt to synthesize these four? I, I, I can sort of see you saying to yourself, these four things are true. They're, since they're all true, they must have some relationship to each other. So no, no, that wasn't it. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Uh, it, it, uh, certainly, I thought they were all true. The fact that they were related to each other came as something of a surprise. Okay. Uh, and it was because of that surprise that I wanted to write the book. Um, as for what happened afterwards, I, 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 perhaps not the right person to ask what Im impact it's had on people, but... but uh, I am constantly being told by people that that book has done something to them. Oh, good. Um, 
so uh, you know, <laughs> for better or worse, um, uh, the uh, I don't think it is because of me that the uh, that some strands of it, namely, say uh, Popper's um, theory of knowledge and the, the Everett interpretation, have have become more respectable. I, I have to choose my words carefully here because I think what's happened is they've become more taken seriously. But I don't think a greater proportion of the professionals in physics or philosophy actually agree with these two theories. Mm. <laughs> uh, they just take them more seriously. So it, it's it's now more of a more of a thing that you know you can have you can you can have a a paper on Everettian quantum theory, and it won't be rejected as being philosophy, right. as as it might well have been twenty years ago. But if you if you asked for a show of hands at a physics conference, um, then uh, of who who endorses the Everett interpretation and who endorses others, Everett interpretation gets ten percent of the hands going up now, and it did twenty years ago as well. Mm. And and I don't understand this phenomenon. Uh, you know, if 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 um, one would think that that if if the argument um, in favour of it is good, then it should gradually go to a hundred percent. And if the argument is bad, it should gradually go down to zero. Yeah. Um, but that hasn't happened. And and another strange thing is that the um, the supporters. The, the endorsers of Everett tend to be the younger people in the audience. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, we, we were thinking uh, originally, oh, it's the younger people. OK, the older people are going to die out. And but it doesn't happen that way. I, I don't know if it's that the younger people change their minds or that the ones who believe Everett leave the field or I don't know what it is. Uh, I only know of one person who. Uh, that, that I'm specifically aware of, who endorsed Everett at one point and then changed his mind. Hmm. Um, in every other case, it's it's always been in one direction, and yet it stays at 10%, so go figure. Hmm. So talking about the influence of a book, um, I want to bring up Stephen Wolfram's A New Kind of Science, and he uses uh, one-dimensional cellular autonoma to demonstrate an idea that perhaps nature is rule-based. And so he develops this idea in this book. And I've sort of been looking for the influence of uh, his book. And maybe there's a little—he's certainly carrying it further with Wolfram Alpha and things like—and his Wolfram— natural language, programming language. But one of the things he does is he rejects as uninteresting to him quantum theory. And you've done something which is, um, shall I say, taking quantum theory seriously. In other words, if this is true, it's got to be true of everything. It's fundamental. And we can redo everything from a quantum point of view. So I gather one of the things you're doing to try to unfold this is what you call constructor theory. And see if you can describe for us what 
what you mean by that. Hello? Yeah. Hello? Oh, are, are okay. We, still here? We, we, we were cut off. Oh, uh, sorry about that. So I was asking if you could describe your constructor theory. Ah, yes. Um, so... Um, this was originally, I originally called this quantum constructor theory because it, it would happen because I, real, uh, I had originally thought that the quantum theory of computation it contained within itself the whole of physics. And that's because a universal quantum computer is universal. And therefore, the set of all physical objects and all behaviors of physical objects is sort of isomorphic to the set of all programs for this single object, the universal quantum computer. So mm. I thought, you know, the whole of physics is contained in the in the quantum theory of computation, including classical realized, computa sorry, including quant classical computation. Yes, yes. Uh, it, it, so the quantum theory of computation contains a lot more than just physics because it contains a whole load of physical, uh, a, a whole load of um, mathematical. Uh, relationships um, that aren't instantiated in physics other than in quantum computers. So, yes, so I, I thought it encompassed everything. But then I realized that, that the tiny detail is really a massive story, which is that um, when you have a quantum computer program, that even if it does correspond to something physical, in order to decide what physical object that corresponds to, you need a theory of physics, which is beyond quantum theory of computation. Uh -huh. and, and, and therefore, the quantum theory of computation is not the whole of physics after all. So I, 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 I thought I would set out to uh, improve the quantum theory of computation to uh, include, so that it did include the whole of physics, uh, by by having by adding to it a theory of which objects correspond to which programs, that was going to be quantum constructor theory. And then I then I slowly realized that um, in order to make it universal in that sense, um, it, it had to be more than just a generalization of quantum theory. And so then I, I eventually dropped the quantum constructor theory and just developed um, constructor theory, which is a deeper way of understanding the physical world. It's a deeper way of expressing laws of physics, principles of physics, and beyond physics, in, again, into epistemology, theory of evolution, and so on. It, it, uh, it's a very um, powerful um, formalism and and but more important a, a way of thinking about laws and principles of nature so how much of that can you describe to us that we can sort of get a grip on uh well that now the way i i mainly see it is um that um physics until now or let's say between galileo and and the present day the the basic idea of what a, a, an explanation in physics consists of is that it consists of some kind of law of motion and which you apply to initial conditions to tell you what will happen later. Or you can apply it to 
what happens now to tell you what happened earlier and, and so on. So it sort of relates the state of, of the world uh, at two different times by expressing a law of motion between them. So that's and, like a law of motion and a bunch of billiard balls. Yes, yes. That, that is the, the current prevailing conception of fundamental physics and in fact, fundamental everything. Right down, right down to, right down to Feynman, right down to Feynman diagrams. Yes, yes, uh, exactly. Now, um, it, it has it has been known for for uh, a century at least that there are some things that we know in physics that are either difficult or fundamentally impossible to even express in those terms. The most obvious one is the question, what are the initial conditions of the universe? You can't explain the initial conditions of the universe by saying, well, before there was this, and then there were laws of motion, and then we got the initial conditions. So, uh, you know, the initial conditions can't be explained that way. Hmm. Um, another thing that can't be explained is is the thermodynamics. Uh, in, in thermodynamics, you have... Um, uh, irreversible processes, like when you break an egg, uh, you can't put the egg back together again by reversing what you did with it. Particularly and if you scramble it. <laughs> it. Yeah. Well, even if you just break it and, you know, it, it comes out, um, then, then uh, I mean, you might be able to reverse it by, by picking out individual atoms and moving them back to where they were. But that would not be the same process that you broke it by. Breaking it is much easier. Right. Breaking it and scrambling it, if you like, uh, is much easier. And that that people have been trying for, for over a century to reconcile. And, and so what I've just described is a consequence of the second law of thermodynamics. And people have been trying to reconcile that with the with the fact that we know that the laws of motion are time reversible. So uh, whatever is a permitted motion of eggs or, or anything else, the reverse is also a permitted motion under the laws of motion. And yet, in practice, you, you just can't achieve that motion. So, um, And classical that, physics tries to explain this statistically. Yes, yes. Well, it, it tries to explain it in many ways, none of which work. So statistically, the trouble with that is that... It, it will only tell you what will probably happen, and what will probably happen is not what actually happens. So if you, it's never what actually happens. If you, if you toss a coin a thousand times, you will never get exactly 500 heads. But classical physics did tell us the broken glass can reassemble. It's just very unlikely. Yes, again, the, the very <laughs> unlikely is the thing that, that the laws of physics know nothing about. Hmm. Um, the, the, the quantum theory, that, that is the bad interpretations of quantum theory, tried to introduce probability into quantum theory, but that was a mistake. And in the many universe interpretation, there is no probability. So, uh, so but in constructor theory, uh, one can, uh, we, we change our perspective away from this idea of initial conditions plus laws of motion being the only legitimate way of explaining things. And instead, the, the dichotomy, so the, and that would be uh, initial conditions plus laws of motion distinguish what happens from what doesn't happen. 
Now, in, in constructor theory, the idea is you have a completely different kind of explanation. Instead of distinguishing what happens from what doesn't happen in this initial plus final uh, mode, you, you ask what is possible and you want to distinguish that from what is impossible. So what is impossible is, is a thing that's forbidden by the laws of nature and what is possible is what is permitted by the laws of nature and uh, what actually happens is then an emergent property of, of um, what can happen. So mm -hmm. for example, um, one of the one of the laws that's another of the laws that's very difficult to state in in the conventional uh, way of doing physics is the law of the universality of computation that the mere fact that there exists a machine that can the thing that started me off on this path that there exists a machine that can mimic the the uh, behavior of any other machine with arbitrary accuracy that is very difficult to state because the machine that does this is not a particle it's a very complicated object and the more accurate you want it to be the more complicated the machine has got to be and yet the law about that machine is very simple conceptually very simple and in constructor theory it's also very simple um so i got some questions for you but before i do that <coughs> excuse me let's introduce our guest again my name is john labelle you're listening to visionaries and our guest today is uh, David Deutsch. And just a few places to go look. Obviously, you could start right now with Wikipedia. But I also recommend John Brockman's edge.org. There are a few great articles by Deutsch on there. And then Deutsch's own website, um, uh, constructortheory.org. So you can follow up on our guest. And let me now uh, ask about this. Um, I guess you're talking about a Turing machine can emulate any other uh, universal computational process. Is a Turing machine limited by the fact that it's not a quantum computer and you would need a quantum Turing machine to really be able to emulate yes. any other? Yes, uh, the, the, the Turing machine as originally envisaged by Turing um, in, it is equivalent to the universal quantum computer in regard to computations on integers, which is what Turing was originally interested in because of the way that that idea arose. But there are other kinds of computation uh, and uh, such as cryptography and so on, where the where the quantum computer is um, inherently superior, uh, it, it's often called the quantum Turing machine by kind of by analogy with Turing's. But I, I think that's a terrible misnomer mm. because one can also build Turing machines it, using quantum hardware. And that would have certain advantages and, and, and so on. But that's not the same as a universal quantum computer. So I, I, I'm always campaign for the for the terminology universal quantum computer, not universe, not um, right. a quantum Turing machine. Right. You know, it's interesting. I'm my mind is wandering right now and I'm thinking back on um, I'm wondering if we lost anything when we abandon analog computers where 
battleships in World War II had huge metal discs that rotated and tilted with uh, ball bearings rolling around them to do the computation for aiming the guns uh, before they had digital computers. And I'm thinking about, I guess, when Feynman introduced the concept of a quantum computer, what he was thinking was, if a computer's going to emulate reality, reality is quantum, therefore the computer would have to be a quantum computer. So um, tell us some more about your thoughts about what it means to fully dive into realizing that we're in a quantum world. Yes. Um, uh, first of all, we haven't lost anything by, by losing analog computers. In fact, that's an integral part of the story. Mm. And and uh, it's what one of the things that connects the theory of evolution with quantum theory. Um, uh, basically, digital computers, it's only digital computers that can be error corrected. Analog computers are inherently not error correctable. Uh-huh. Um, and therefore, if you have a long computation on an analog computer, errors are going to build up, and that that uh, re- that uh, eventually limits the scope of the possible computations that it can perform. Now, if the 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 um, equivalent of that issue in the theory of evolution uh, is that Darwin was unaware that uh, genes are digital. Right. Um, it, he it thought, was actually he kind thought of they, known he at the time, they, but he, he didn't know about right, it. Right, he thought they blended. Yes, he thought they blended. And he was aware that this is a problem, that this, this would uh, uh, give rise to a problem with error correction. He didn't know how to solve it. And as always with Darwin, he was honest enough to say, you know, he, he didn't try to fudge this. Uh, he, he didn't know what the answer was. Uh, uh, I don't know much about the history of this, but I understand that that Mendel and so on had already happened. Yes, and And, Darwin just neglected to read his paper. (laughs) Right, right. Now, can um, you describe... Now we know that that evolution, which requires faithful copying for generation to generation, can only take place uh, digitally and... Uh, in fact, DNA does digital computation. And has built-in error correction. Yes, yes, very much so. Now, do you apply this um, evolution beyond DNA biology? Uh, is it something that happens in the universe, the solar system, galaxies, or is it unique to biology? Uh, neither. It, it, it's not unique to biology uh, there have been ideas about about applying it to physics in the large, like Lee Smolin has some ideas about the universe uh, reconstituting itself through black holes uh, and so on. I, 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 I'm skeptical about all that. Right. But, but um, evolution does also happen in the realm of ideas. And uh, in fact, evolutionary theories about the evolution of ideas, again, predate Darwin, but again, they, they were used the wrong theory of evolution. It, it has to be Darwinian evolution, not Lamarckian. Uh, so um, Richard Dawkins introduced the, the concept of memes, a, a meme being a kind of idea that can be copied from one person to another. But 
uh, memes, although the, the, the same theory applies to them as does to um, genes, the actual uh, natural history of memes, as it were, is completely different from that of genes because uh, the, the, their copying happens in a different way. We don't copy an idea from one mind to another. Even if you told me something and I learned it off by heart, I would not have in my mind the same idea that you had. Hmm. Um, and that, that fact dominates the transmission and evolution of memes. Interesting. Um, so we have a little bit more time left, and maybe I'll try to persuade you to come on again in the future because we have a huge topic we haven't even gotten to yet, and that is... Uh, I described David wrote a book called The Fabric of Reality, but he wrote another book called The Beginning of Infinity, which is a monumentally important book. So, David, what were you trying to do in The Beginning of Infinity, and what prompted you to write that? Um, so The Fabric of Reality was, was about four things, and The Beginning of Infinity is about lots of things which, which have one theme in common, which is progress. Mm. So it's about the different ways, the different senses in which progress has happened and can happen uh, in science, in, in morality, in economics, uh, and, and, and also in, in the universe. Um, and that they, they all have, again, various laws in common. They're, they're sort of, they're all, best understood in the light of each other. Um, and um, the, but, but it, but it um, extends into the future. So it's kind of applying the ideas of the fabric of reality, but, but uh, the common theme is different. It's, it's not, what, not the uh, same basic theory, but the same... Um, idea of progress mm. in all of them and and uh so there uh, I, I explore various ideas of progress especially the enlightenment the uh 17th 17th 18th century enlightenment and i have a slightly different take on it from most people which i i uh, basically got from the historian roy porter who uh, thinks that what's usually called the enlightenment is actually two different phenomena, both of which are a rejection of uh, absolutism and tyranny and, and authoritarianism that went before, but are actually also opposed to each other. Um, so and one what of are them those ideas? Is, yes. Sorry? What, what, what are those two opposing ideas? Uh, yeah. So um, both of them were, were rebellions against authority. One of them... Uh, well, there's several ways of thinking about what the difference was. One of them was utopian, and the other was open-ended. So one of them sort of had the idea that that everything that's wrong with the world is because of tyranny and authority and 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 um, uh, monarchy and aristocracy and so on. And that if those were abolished, then the world would be fine. Whereas uh, the other, and that was sort of the European, that, 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 the, that, 
that was what the idea that underlay things like the French Revolution. Or the, 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 the debacle of the French Revolution. Yes. Um, uh, but, but this is, I mean, the people who, who had hopes were not hoping for the terror and, and that kind of thing. That They were hoping for a good world. Right. And uh, that, w- that was characterized both wings of the Enlightenment. The other wing, which was sort of centered in England and Scotland, but also maybe originated in in the Netherlands uh, was was an I an idea of uh, not that we could get to an ideal state but that we could improve our state but only to a state which could itself be improved so there you although you need to remove the impediments to progress you need to do it in such a way that doesn't destroy your the ability to <laughs> remove impediments uh-huh. And and uh, th- that led to an evolutionary idea, which uh, so in, in 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 let's say uh, you know when I say these things were centered in England and Scotland and and uh, Netherlands, I'm not referring to the individuals. There there were people who were adherents of both enlightenments in every country in the in the civilized world. Uh, and opponents in every country, and also advocates of the old uh, of the old system as well. Um, uh, so the, one of the differences this led to is that uh, when you think that you're you're heading for a, 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 for a utopia for for the final state, um, you, what 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 you do is you, you, the idea is you you look for the for the people who are your enemies at the moment, and you try and kill them all. So the idea was, you know, we, we remove the aristocracy, we remove the priests, we, we uh, and, and so on. And what is left will be good. Whereas um, the uh, the Anglosphere sort of way of of approaching um, the problem of uh, rebelling from authority uh, or the, how to approach the rebellion from authority was to extend privileges which were previously the uh, to the uh, uh, confined to the aristocracy to everybody. Mm. So there were in in the Anglosphere there were waves of egalitarianism where the vote was extended and property rights were extended, rights were extended from men to women. That that was the kind of thing where uh, and you know and and. Uh, we have the phrase, the, an Englishman's home is his castle. That was because for hundreds of years, an aristocrat's home had been his castle, literally. And he, he was the lord of his own domain. And gradually, the idea was that everybody was the lord of his own domain, if only a smaller one. And that led to an individualism. And whereas the continental enlightenment led to a collectivism. So that that's some of the some of the themes. So fantastic. Now there are two things. Um, one is uh, for our audience. Um, uh, David extends this out to, you know, once you have this idea, if it keeps going, the reason his title is Beginning of Infinity, is, uh, you know, you can maybe eventually build Dyson spheres, Dyson spheres, and re-engineer the universe. Um, but uh, I want to ask you, there are a couple of books along a similar theme of yours. I'm thinking of 
that are coming out now, Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now. And I have a feeling of, I agree with uh, both of you on the Enlightenment, but I have a, maybe I'm more pessimistic than the both of you in that I feel it's very fragile. You seem to be rather confident it's going to keep going. So how do you feel about confidence versus fragility in the continuation of what the Enlightenment has opened? Uh, I think in in this sense that you're uh, saying here, I, I am a little more pessimistic than Stephen Pinker, although I think if, if you ask him straight out, does he think that there's anything inevitable about progress? He will say, of course not. And if, if you ask, well, can we say that progress is likely? I don't know what he'd say. He, he, he might well say, well, yeah, it's quite likely and so on. Whereas my, my view is progress is possible, um, but we can mess it up. It's been messed up before. And there's, there's no, no, not only no reason to think that it's inevitable, but there's no meaning to say that it's likely. Uh, mm -hmm. This would be a mis one of those misuses of probability. Um, the, 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 uh, all we can say is what's possible and what isn't possible. So that's, and, that's why your book and his book are important, that we understand where it came from so that we don't mess it up. <laughs> yes, and it has been messed up before at every single time except the present the present instance of enlightenment was messed up. So what? But, uh, none of them lasted as long as ours. So you know that that's a reason for hope. Yeah. So uh, just um, in a few minutes remaining, uh, what are some of the things your book sees, your uh, the beginning of infinity sees, as? Have, what what does it mean, infinity? The beginning of infinity. Where where does it to infinity and beyond? Where does it take us? <laughs> well, not, not beyond. Uh, the the first of all, I, I think that that um, in, infinity has a completely undeserved reputation for being mysterious and woo woo. Um, in, in infinity is is. Um, uh, was introduced in mathematics and in physics. Um, as a way of simplifying ideas, like I said, mm. uh, rather than think uh, of crossing the room as an infinite number of things and worrying about how that's possible, like Zeno did in antiquity, uh, we realize that the laws are about feet and inches, not about points. And so we, we have only a finite number of feet and inches. So on the other hand, infinity is somewhat counterintuitive in that um, when you have an amount of something, no matter how large it is, it never gets any closer to infinity. So uh, th this applies in all sorts of uh, ways. So in, in regard to progress, in regard to technological progress, that means that we're always at the beginning. No matter how well we do, no matter how much power we get, in our fundamental understanding or in our technology, uh, we are always at the beginning of what is possible. And as uh, Karl Popper says, uh, in regard to knowledge, although we may differ in various ways in, in the knowledge that we all have, we are all alike in our infinite ignorance. 
And I, I think that is a uh, very important egalitarian implication of the theory of knowledge that we we uh, b because there's infinity ahead of us we are all alike in our ignorance we're also all alike in our fallibility so no matter how much knowledge you have you may be mistaken about any particular thing fantastic you know there's a, a critic of ray Kurzweil's um uh exponential curve and he says oh we're just at the knee and we're about to go straight up uh someone had pointed out depending upon how you draw the curve we're always at the knee um there's no such thing you know that there's no such thing as a special point uh, well i, I the think Kurzweil's idea which i disagree with is that we're going to go faster than exponential yeah right so uh, our guest has been David Deutsch. David, anything you want to leave our audience with? And um, uh, after you do that, I'll, I'll uh, well, I'll, let's do it right now. Uh, look up David on Wikipedia. Go to uh, BrockmansEdge.org and search on his name. And go to um, ConstructorTheory.org. Uh, oh, yeah. There's also my own website. Oh, uh, and that is? DavidDeutsch.org.uk. But, oh, I mean, great. all those things link to each other, so you you just need to find one of them. Great. So, uh, what do you want to leave our audience with? Well, I, I, um, I want to leave everybody with a sense of optimism that, that there is uh, all the all the problems in the world are, are just problems and are caused by lack of knowledge. There is, there is never a brick wall that we're up against except the laws of physics, and the laws of physics do not have it in for us. We'll, we'll manage without exceeding the speed of light. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, David Deutsch, thank you very much, and this has been Visionaries. Tune in again next week. <laughs>